Well, again, uh, greetings and welcome to everyone. And uh, we are also coming today to our friends, our brothers and sisters at our Whitehall campus via video. So uh, great to have you guys with us as well. Thrilled about what God is doing in the congregation there. And um, I'm honored and privileged to be bringing God's word to us today. So uh, let me say a prayer for that and then we'll dive in, okay? Father in heaven, through your spirit now, give me the words that you want me to say, that I might speak the word of God to the people of God in the house of God this day. Change us a little bit more into the image of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is August still, and uh, this month we are talking about the Church of Jesus. And if you want to take the study guide out of your worship folder, you can do that. And uh, you can, there's some white space on there to take some notes, a few blanks to fill in if you feel so inclined. And uh, you can follow along with me. When I say we're talking about the church of Jesus, what I mean by that is we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about us, right? We all know there's a way that we talk that confuses things sometimes. Because we say things like, I'm going to church, or let's go to church, which makes it sound like the church is a place or a building that you go to. But technically, scripturally speaking, that's not really true. The early church, did you know this, didn't even have a building to go to. There were not church buildings for over 300 years when the first church got started. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Would you say that word with me? Ekklesia. That's a Greek word which, which refers to a called out assembly. The church is a collection of people who have been what? Called out by Jesus. Called out of the world. Called out of darkness. Called out of sin. Called out of Satan's kingdom and called into salvation and worship of Jesus, called into faithful devotion to Jesus and to his mission. And these saved people assemble together, gather together regularly for worship and fellowship, for instruction, for observing the ordinances of the church, including the Lord's table that we'll be observing a little bit later on. The church of Jesus gathers and then we leave this place and we scatter out into the world to live out that life of Jesus that is in us. So really, we are the church, right? Buildings come and go, locations can change, but it is the saved, called out, gathering and scattering people of God who are really the church. If you're following with me so far, nod your head like this. Okay, I see you in Whitehall. Well, last week we went way up high to get the, the drone's eye aerial view of Jesus' church. And after having that drone here with me, I went out and flew it this week and got it caught in a tree right here on the church property, which was frustrating, but we got it down. But anyway... Last week, we were elevated way, 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 way up high to that vantage point 
by reading the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And didn't we experience a kind of sweet awe as we were hovering up there, way up high above the landscape, taking in the bigger picture, the panoramic view of God's church from his perspective. And I think we realized again that there's more going on than meets the eye. We saw that we're all caught up in this story, this this big grand story of God, a drama that's unfolding chapter by chapter. A drama in which cosmic forces are at war, battling for supremacy and, and battling for glory and the church the called out assembly of God, the people of God on the earth, well, we have a key role to play in how that story plays out. And we noted that just like in all good stories, this story has a hero, right? A conquering hero who is none other than Jesus Christ, the beloved son of the Father. This one who came to earth, wrapped in human flesh, This one who lived the perfect, beautiful life that God requires and then died, was executed like a common criminal, was buried, who rose from the grave. And all of this to redeem for himself a special people who would live their lives in such a way that would showcase his glory for a watching universe to see and marvel at. And we do this by being united as one people under one head, though we are different in many ways. Diverse people groups. But Jesus has brought us together by his redeeming grace into one body, the church, over which Jesus presides as the head of the body. To him be glory in the church, Paul exclaimed, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And that's really the goal of the story, to bring Jesus glory. Then as we made our way into chapter 4 of Ephesians, I think we were thrilled to see that, that our individual part, each and every one of us in that big story, is not insignificant, but we matter. We matter. The way we live our lives makes a difference. In fact, each one of us is called by God, it says in verse 1, to walk worthy of that high and lofty calling and to work hard to preserve and protect this unity, this oneness that Jesus paid such a high price to create. And so we heard Paul's very practical challenge to each of us in verses 2 and 3, to be humble and to be gentle, and to be patient. And we all acknowledge we could all use a little bit more of those things. And to be forbearing with each other, and to remember that we are not defined by our differences, but rather by what we all share in common. We took a few moments last weekend to reinforce that scriptural teaching that we have a primary identity now being in Christ, right? And our primary identity is not black or white, not Democrat or Republican, not conservative or liberal, not white collar or blue collar, upper class or middle class or lower class. Those things may be true of us, but they're not the truest truth about us. Rather, we are in Christ. 
in Christ. And that reality transcends all those other distinctions. We are Jesus lovers. We're followers of Christ. That's the identity that defines us most. And so in Christ, we share the deepest things in common. So we can acknowledge our other secondary identities and distinctions while uniting under one banner, first and foremost, we are the people of God, Jesus' followers. That'd be a good place to say amen. Amen. As we get further into chapter 4, we find Paul settling in on one particular metaphor for, for the church, and that is a body. Paul begins more and more to refer to the, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church of Jesus as his body, the body of Christ. We're familiar with this metaphor, right? This terminology. Just as Jesus, the Son of God, when he was here, had a physical body that he walked around in, that he expressed himself through, after his ascension back into heaven, he now has a spiritual body on earth through which to continue to express himself and his life. The body of Christ, the church. Jesus still has a body. And guess what? We're it. We are the body of Christ. And since he is building up his body, I guess we could say that Jesus is the ultimate bodybuilder. Didn't he once say, I will build my church? Don't we read here in Ephesians 4, so that the body of Christ may be built up? But Jesus is the supreme bodybuilder. In our passage today, Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 12, we're going to seek to understand better and celebrate and cooperate with three aspects of the bodybuilding work of Jesus. Those things that he has done and the things that he's doing every day to build up his body here on the earth into a vibrant, healthy, muscular, strong, active, energized force in this world for good and for glory. So let me read the entire section, the first 12 verses of Ephesians 4 first, just to get the context, and then we'll hone in on verses 7 through 12. So here's how this chapter begins once again. Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep or preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, for there is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, 
some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This is the word of God. This is so good. If the church of Jesus could really get this, could really embrace Jesus' design for his church, it would revolutionize not only the church, but the world. And Jesus really would receive glory in and through his church, which I hope that we make our aim here at New Life. All right, three aspects of Jesus' bodybuilding work are revealed to us in this passage. Here's number one. Jesus builds up his body by giving grace gifts. I'm going to use that term. Grace gifts to every individual believer for the benefit of the church. Like it said in verse 7, but to each one of us. How many of us is that? Like everyone, right? <laughs> but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace has been given to every single one of God's people. What is grace? Maybe you learned this acrostic when you were a kid like I did. Grace is simply God's riches at Christ's expense. Say that with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. How many of you have heard that before? Okay, some of you. Yeah, some of you in Whitehall. God's riches at Christ's expense. Listen, it is grace that is at the heart of the gospel. Amen? It's grace that's at the root of the gospel. Grace is this. Grace is God giving gifts to sinful people who don't deserve it because Jesus paid a price. Grace is Jesus, listen, receiving what he didn't deserve, judgment, so that we could receive what we don't deserve, forgiveness of our sins and eternal life and a host of other spiritual blessings. Grace is God pouring out his wrath on his son so that he could pour out his gifts on us. Grace is the sac sacrificial, self-giving nature of God that prompts him to save ungodly, self-centered rebels like us from their sins. Like the Bible says, for it is by grace that you have been and you know what? To show somebody grace is always costly. It always costs something. Grace give, gives gifts to other people at great personal expense. That's the nature of grace. And so here this fact is just simply stated to each one of us, each of us in the body of Christ, grace has been given. But I ask this question, is there a particular kind of grace gift that Paul has in mind here in this text. Most Bible scholars believe yes, and the context bears that out because it says, uh, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, or literally, as Christ measured it out. So this has to be referring to gifts given by Jesus to each of his people that, that differ in some way that differ in, in some respect from person to person to person to person to person. So this is talking about a personalized, custom-designed, measured-out gift package 
from Jesus to you and to me. And here's where I join many Bible scholars in believing that what's in view here are spiritual gifts. In the Greek language, charismata. Those special abilities given by Jesus through his Holy Spirit to every Christian. To every Christian. And that's a gift that's designed to be used to bless and build up the body of Christ. A special ability that Jesus has given you and me through the Holy Spirit, an ability to somehow bless and build others up in the body of Christ, spiritual gifts. And I'm not sure how much teaching you've had on this topic, but I'd like to read for us the two primary key Bible passages that talk about these spiritual gifts. Can help us understand this better, okay? The first is in, well, they're in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. That's a way to remember it. So here's the passage in Romans 12. Verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. There it is, spiritual gifts. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. There's that idea again of grace being measured out. He's going to talk about some gifts. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, there's another gift, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. Oh, that God would give that gift to more people, right? If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Do you see this catalog or listing of gifts? These are special abilities that God gives to each and every one of his people to use to bless and build up the body of Christ. So, Everyone in the body is not the same. Just as the church is meant to be diverse racially and diverse ethnically, so it is also diverse in giftedness. We each have different giftings given to us by the grace of God and given to us to use. Here's the other key passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, there it is again, I don't want you to be ignorant. Amen. We want to be informed, right? Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit who gives them. There are different kinds of service, those gifts expressed in different serving roles, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, the way it works out, but the same God works all of them in all men. Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit or the gift of the Spirit is given for the common good. That tells us why he gives us these gifts for the common good, to, to bless and build up the body of Christ. And here's a listing of them. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, or the word of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith. Did you know that faith is a spiritual gift? By the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. That ability to discern where a message is coming from. 
to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, which is previously unknown languages, and to still another the interpretation of those tongues or languages. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. Amen. Now, our own Dr. J. Firebaugh and his wife, Janet, have done all of us a great and tremendous favor by putting together a catalog of the spiritual gifts mentioned in these passages, and it offers a brief description of each one of these gifts and explains how each one could be used in the body of Christ to serve and build other people up. And we're going to make these available to you today in the lobby so you can pick one up or at Whitehall in a designated space there that someone will let you know where, it, where they are. Let me give you just a sampling of these. We talked about that gift of encouragement, right? Encouragement. This gift is evident in those who consistently call upon others to heed and follow God's truth. With this, those with this gift naturally pump fresh oxygen into the lungs of other members to persevere or hang on during tough seasons. They also find it natural to motivate others to take bold steps for Jesus. The gift of encouragement. How about the gift of mercy that is mentioned? The person with this gift of mercy is able to empathize with people in such a way that they feel loved and cared for. They show sympathy and sensitivity in a manner that brings comfort to others in your group or in your church. A way to show this would be visiting maybe a fellow group member in the hospital or calling them when they're sick or being quick to listen when somebody else is going through a a difficult or discouraging time, enabling them to feel heard. How about the gift of administration? Is there anybody here who believes they have the gift of administration? I know there's one over here. What a great gift. This gift is the divine strength or ability to organize multiple tasks and groups of people to accomplish great things. Man, these people are important, right? This could be used in a small group by coordinating events or outings or caring for the details so that everybody's overall experience is positive. How about the gift of discernment? That's spoken of in the scriptures. This is the ability to quickly see through situations, identify key issues, and they'll then help other people clearly focus on the truth and on God's wisdom and on their options. It could be used in, for example, small group life by being able to help individuals know how to best handle a situation that has arisen in their lives. Hey, I believe the Lord would have you to consider this. Sometimes it involves being able to recognize and call out the spiritual warfare that is involved. That's just a sampling. Lots and lots of gifts that God gives his people in the church for the sake of blessing and building up the body of Christ. So helpful. And remember, all this talk about each of us having and using our spiritual gifts goes to Jesus' body being healthy and unified and built up so that we can reflect his nature to a watching world and also watching spirit beings. It goes to Jesus being glorified in his church. 
So today I want to look you in the eye and I want to say to you, you are a gifted person. 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 Maybe you haven't thought about yourself that way, but you're gifted. The world has been wrong about you. The people who have spoken negativity into your life are wrong about you. If you're in Christ, you've been given a wonderful gift package from the Lord. You have something to offer, something your brothers and sisters need. Others really do need you. Christ's body needs your gifting. Listen, if you keep them hidden, if you leave your your gifts on the shelf where they collect dust and go dormant, I'm affected by that. Other people are affected by your non-use of your giftings. We'll find ourselves handicapped like like a body with a non-functioning limb or a non-functioning organ. We need each other. I think of the guy in this room who has a heart for kids and who has giftings to teach children the Word of God and the truths of God. The body here needs you functioning in your giftedness if we're going to be healthy. I think of the young lady with leadership gifts who's been kind of hanging back, hanging back. Why? Because you're a woman? Because... You got passed over once and it hurt. You're afraid to show your glory because of what other people might think. I'm telling you, the body needs you to function in your giftings. I'm thinking of the seasoned believer who's known Christ for a long time, who has gifts that blessed others in the past, but you kind of feel like your time is over now. You've turned it over to the young people and you've taken your seat in the bleachers to be a spectator. And you're cheering others on. Go for it, you young people. Okay, but I would ask you this. Are you absolutely sure that Jesus is done with you? Could could that gift be taken off the shelf, dusted off and used some more? Could you perhaps mentor one of those younger people who has similar giftings as you have so that they can bless the body like you did back in the 80s? Some of you have prophetic gifts. God gives you words of knowledge, words of wisdom to share with other people. And if you do, it's going to open their eyes. It's going, to, it's going to give them a sense of direction. For Christ's sake, use that gift. It's needed. Sure, we all need training and we need experience to hone and develop our giftings for sure. In our immaturity, we may have misused our gifts at times. We all have. I have. But don't let, listen, don't let one or two bad experiences in your past cause you to put your gift back in the box and stuff it down in the crawl space with the spiders. Use it. Some of you have the gift of healing prayer. You pray for people's physical afflictions and they get healed. For for their sake, for Christ's sake, use that gift. Step out of the shadows and use it. Some of you have the gift of giving. For God's sake, develop your ability to earn lots and lots and lots of income and then invest heavily in the kingdom of God. Amen? 
That's what that gift's all about. If you have a gift, and you do, if you're in Christ, Paul, Jesus, and Pastor Steve say, please use it. Use it. Say this, I am gifted. That was pitiful. They did much better in Whitehall. Say it again. I am gifted. I will use my gifts to bless his body. I won't hide them any longer. In the next few verses, Paul employs a metaphor, an image to help us picture our conquering hero triumphantly distributing his gifts to his people. I think Paul does this first off to show that this gift-giving king was actually predicted in the Old Testament. But I think also he does it to infuse us with even more motivation to actually unwrap our gifts and use them. Number two, Jesus builds up his body. Remember, we're talking about Jesus, the bodybuilder. He builds up his body by giving gifts to his people just like an ancient conquering hero king. Verse 8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now this is a quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 68. And Paul uses that quote and applies it to who? Jesus. Which is just another great reminder that the Old Testament actually points us to Jesus again and again and again, which is what Jesus himself taught, that the Old Testament was about him. See John 5.39. But this psalm now paints the picture of a victorious Israelite king, say David, or Saul, or Solomon, who after leading his troops to a military victory over an opposing army, would return from the battlefield and would make his way up Mount Zion, ascending the hill of the Lord into the holy city of Jerusalem, riding proudly, I'm sure, on his trusty steed. And there, thousands of people would be lining the streets, waiting in eager anticipation for their king's arrival, because the good news of victory already had been announced to them by a herald. And when the king would finally enter into the city, the crowd would go wild. They would erupt in wild cheering and applause, and the king would lead this triumphant procession through the streets of the city while the people shouted and danced and wept for joy and paid tribute to their conquering hero. So the king would be first in this procession, trailing behind him would be the humiliated band of defeated soldiers dragging along in chains. They just had their tails whipped in battle. They were followed by a line of overjoyed POWs, Israelites who had been in captivity that the king had liberated and rescued from their bondage, so they wouldn't have been dragging along, they would have been probably hopping along and dancing and smiling, free, coming home. Then behind them would be these carts rolling along, heaped up with the spoils of war. Like what? 
things taken from the treasury of the defeated king, gold and silver and food and fine fabric and all such things. And during this procession, the king would have his men go over to these carts and grab handfuls of this stuff and distribute them to the people lining the streets. He would be giving them victory gifts. And don't you think they were elated to receive those? And everyone, as you can imagine, would pretty much go bonkers. Can you see that? Can you picture that in your mind? When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. That's the picture. The prophesied picture of our hero King Jesus, victorious over his enemies by his sin-conquering cross and his death-defying resurrection. Jesus ascending back up into heaven and then sending his spirit to come down and dispense loads of victory gifts to his adoring people. Isn't that awesome? And just like an ancient king would have sustained some battle wounds in achieving his victory, so King Jesus, right, was also wounded, mortally wounded, in order to gain his victory, which, in fact, is our victory. So think about that. It cost Jesus a lot to be able to give you your spiritual gift. It cost Jesus blood to be able to give me my spiritual gift. He had to fight and win his battle against sin, death, and the grave, and against all the hordes of Satan in order to do it. And that means that one purpose of Jesus' death was to enable you and I to serve his body on the earth by giving us his gifts. So what would it say if you let those gifts go dormant? I mean, really, what would it say if you failed to develop and use your gifts? On the positive side, what does it say about your heart if you do choose to unwrap those gifts and humbly offer them back to Jesus to serve his body in your areas of gifting? You see, this too is part of what it means, like Paul said, to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Say this, I am gifted... It cost Jesus a lot to give me my gifts. I will gratefully use them to serve his body. Third aspect of Jesus' bodybuilding work, number three, Jesus also builds up his body by giving gifted leaders to his people to equip them for service. This is another aspect now of Jesus causing his body to be healthy and strong. Verse 11, it was he, that's Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare or equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, get strong, muscular, run marathons, bench press 500 pounds, Now listen, we're going to touch on this a lot more in a couple of weeks. For now, let me just say a few things about this. First, Jesus' gifts to his church body to build it up appear to be twofold, right? Spiritual gifts given to the individual members of the church, but here now, gifted leaders given by Jesus to his church to equip those gifted members to serve well. So gifted spiritual leaders are actually themselves gifts from Jesus to his body, the church. And five times of five types, I should say, 
of gifted spiritual leaders are mentioned here, which is why this is sometimes called the five-fold ministry. You see them? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Although the grammar links those last two together, so it's sometimes called pastor-teachers, pastor-teachers. In the unfolding story of Jesus' church, each of these roles plays a key part. Now, some people believe that the first two groups, apostles and prophets, had a very unique and foundational role in the early days of Jesus' church. They base that on chapter 2 and verse 20, where it says, the household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So if they're right, then there are no apostles and prophets today, uppercase apostles and prophets today. Some would allow for apostles and prophets in a reduced or limited sense. You're going to have to decide what you believe about that, okay? Christians debate this. While that's debated, no one really argues against there being evangelists and pastor teachers around in our day. And so it says these gifted leaders are given to the church by Jesus to build up the members and to build up the health and vitality and vibrancy of his body. There's so much I want to say about church leadership. But it would take an entire seminar to say all that I want to say. I'm just going to mention a few things that the Bible says are essential qualities for spiritual leaders in the church. Integrity. Say that. Integrity. Integration of life and belief and message. The Bible calls it blamelessness or being of good reputation. This is essential in every era, but especially in our era. Credibility and trust hang on it. What leaders say and what they do are in alignment, that's integrity. Their lips and their life are in sync. That's integrity. Their motives, message, and manner all match, all line up. That's integrity. Keeping promises, admitting mess-ups. See, we're not talking about perfection here. Because if perfection was a requirement, there wouldn't be any leaders. But admitting our sins and mess-ups and rectifying them, leaders must have integrity To lose your integrity is to forfeit your leadership. Another essential is fidelity. Fidelity. One man wholly committed to one woman, allowing no others to interfere, no other physical women, no other virtual digital women. Fidelity is essential for church leaders. Fidelity is essential for church leaders. Humility. Essential. Even secular writers have come around to see the value of humility in a leader. Self-promoting, personal kingdom-building leaders are disqualified from spiritual leadership. Jesus' kingdom is the only kingdom that matters, right? Humble leaders know that, and they are ferocious in seeking to build the kingdom of Jesus, not their own kingdom. Faithfulness. I'm specifically here talking about being faithful to the word of God. That is essential, crucial for spiritual leaders. There is no equipping of God's people apart from faithfulness to the word of God. Wavering on 
historic, close-handed doctrines of the faith makes a so-called spiritual leader a false teacher, not a spiritual shepherd who loves God's people. Speaking of God's people, how about this essential, a heart for people? A heart for people. Church leader is a lover of the people of God and also a lover of lost people who don't know the Lord yet. Shepherd leaders love people. They love equipping and empowering God's people to grow and serve and lead so that the body of Christ gets built up. There are more, but that's a few. One of our shepherd leaders here prompted me to say a few things about us pastors here at New Life, because it fits here. Maybe under the header, what your pastors want you to know about us, or perhaps, misconceptions held by some that we'd really like to correct. All right? Let me tackle a few of these. Misconception number one. New life pastors are inaccessible. They're very busy. You can't get to them. The truth, we are busy. But we want to be accessible to you. We'll do our best to make time to meet with you. It does help when you set up an appointment and use that courtesy. Still the best way to connect with us, but we want to be accessible to you. We're not locked away in an ivory tower somewhere. You can't get to us, okay? Like I'm right right over there most of the week. (laughs) Misconception number two, pastors probably won't listen to me if I do get to see them. My voice doesn't matter that much. There's a lot of people here. Plus, their minds are probably already made up. Here's the truth. Yeah, we have formed some opinions on things, some strong opinions. But we will always hear you out. It's our pledge to you. It's our pledge to you in Whitehall. We will always hear you out. We may not agree with you in the end, but we'll hear you out. Misconception number three. Pastors have a direct line to God that the average church member doesn't have. They're the only ones who can pray effectively for me. Truth is, we have the same access to God that each and every one of you who are in Christ have. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? We love praying for you, but know that there are others who are more gifted in prayer than some of your pastors. Misconception number four. Pastors have perfect kids, or should have. Truth number four, our kids are not perfect. They're not. Please don't expect them to be. That creates an unhealthy pressure to always be good. And that has disheartened many a pastor's kid and turned some even from the faith. Give them grace. Give them grace. Don't expect perfection. Misconception number five, pastors are super holy and don't associate with normal people, you know, normal people who sometimes do some bad stuff. Truth is, we do love Jesus. We want to live holy lives as pastors, but we're human. We mess up too. We'll strive to own our sins and own our mistakes when we do mess up. We are normal people. We like hanging out with normal people like you. 
Misconception number six. Pastors know how to deal with every possible situation that might arise in your life. The truth, we likely know how to deal with some situations, but you know what? For others, we may need to refer you to somebody who's better equipped than we are. I've been in a number of situations where after I made a full hearing, I realized I'm out of my league here. But thankfully, there are specialists in the body of Christ who have training and experience in those areas that we'll seek to refer you to if, if we feel that's the situation. And misconception number seven, if I tell a pastor something, it's going to leak out and everybody in the church is going to know. And that would be horrible. So I'm not going to church anymore. Truth number seven, we're pretty good at maintaining confidences. And we seek to honor your trust in us. It doesn't hurt if you tell us when you desire confidentiality and say, can we please keep this between you and me? Just to clarify, that helps so that we know because we're told a lot of things and we listen to a lot of people. So, so there you have it. All of our pastors signed off on these statements. So this is not just me. We'll talk more about the purpose and the role of church leaders in the sermon two weeks from now, which I guarantee is going to give you something to mull over and might rattle your chain a little bit. But for now, let's just be thankful that our conquering hero, King Jesus, cares enough about the health and vitality of his body, the church, to provide it with gifted leaders and gifted people who together, under his headship, strive to make the church work like it's supposed to work. And as I've heard said, when the church is working right, there's nothing else in the world quite like it when it's working right. Nothing even comes close. I heard a pastor say this once, when Jesus' church is working like it was designed to, lost people get found, hurting people are comforted, the marginalized find a place of belonging. Those who feel isolated are enfolded into small groups when the church is working right. Poor people are cared for and empowered. Discouraged people find hope. The wounded begin their journey of healing. Aimless wanderers are infused with a fresh sense of purpose and mission when the church is working right. When the church is working right, leaders are raised up. Marriages are restored. Children are given a foundation to build a life on. The gospel is declared and demonstrated to a watching world. When the church is working right, Jesus is seen as great. God is glorified. And Satan and his forces get discouraged and need counseling. That's how it's supposed to work. There's nothing like the church when it's working the way Jesus designed it. And I love being a part of the church. Even with its warts and flaws, it's still the best thing going. And it's all over the world. You'll find it everywhere.